We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fiona. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, please, by your spirit, speak into our hearts. Open our minds uh, to understand, it, understand what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as, as has already been said, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And I've got some statistics about Advent calendars for you in a moment when it comes on the screen. Did you know, according to one piece of research, 88% of British people will be opening an advent calendar today. I'm a bit suspicious of this, actually. I think it might be Cadbury's that have uh, backed this piece of research. (laughs) Apparently 38% of people buy it just for themselves. 15% open the box and scoff the whole lot on the first day. I don't know if there's anybody here. Um, uh, Only 11% have a religious theme. Uh, the other 89% um, is linked, usually linked to a high street or a brand or a particular food product. I mean, did you know that you can, you can buy a pork-scratching advent calendar? <laughs> or there's even a gin-themed advent calendar and a, a gourmet marshmallow calendar. So advent calendars have become kind of the countdown to Christmas. Um, and instead of a picture of Jesus on the 25th of December there's an extra large marshmallow or a packet of pork scratchings. Now, I quite like pork scratchings and uh, marshmallows, but if that is all it's about, is that all Christmas is about? Is that all we've got to look forward to? For the church, Advent is a time of preparation rather than a countdown to Christmas. The word Advent, as you will know, it's a Latin word, and it actually means coming or arrival. So it's a time in the year when we reflect on the first coming of Jesus, but we also recognise that he's coming again. And uh, we're going to look at John the Baptist for a few moments and see what we can learn from him. Uh, Because he is preparing for Jesus to go public in his ministry, and he's also talking about the time when Jesus will come back. So first thing we see about John the Baptist is that he meets God in a desert (coughs) place. Look in verse 1 of uh, Matthew 3 it says in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea so John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Jesus but where does he come from well it looks like he's been living in the desert he's been living in the wilderness if you say well how do you get that from this passage well if you look in Luke uh, chapter 1 and verse 30 it says that uh, John the Baptist lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly And that's why he's wearing his rather strange desert clothing. It's kind of strange, though, isn't it? You would would expect um, the person that was going to announce that Jesus was about to burst onto the world stage, you'd expect that they would choose somebody with a bit of 
gravitas, a bit of importance, a celebrity, somebody that would announce it. But no, the person that God chooses uh, to make this announcement is a man that's been living in the wilderness, in the desert. We might think that's strange, but actually uh, he follows, John the Baptist follows in a whole line of other prophets, people who spent time in the wilderness, in the desert, before they do what God has called them to do. Moses did, David did, Jesus will do. He'll spend 40 days in the wilderness. In fact, the people of Israel spent 40 years there. You see, the desert place is where you can meet God. And throughout the history of God's people, the presence of God was experienced in situations of hardship. Deserts are barren places, and they can be lonely places. When you're in the desert, then nobody knows uh, who you are. It's just you, God, and lots of sand. But it can become a place where God shapes us into the people he wants us to be. Perhaps you are in a desert place right now, not literally. Perhaps you feel like you're in a wilderness. Christmas is coming, but you don't feel in any way like celebrating. Perhaps for you, life has become heavy. It feels like you're wading through thick custard. But these verses remind us that God meets people where they are. For John, John the Baptist had endured years of lonely preparation by God. And before he went and spoke and became the voice that welcomed in Jesus, he'd listened and he'd been prepared and shaped by God. So if you're in that place now, who knows what God has to say to you in your wilderness, in your desert place? Who knows what God is preparing for you to do? Secondly, the thing about John the Baptist is that he delivers his message with confidence. Um, it's been 400 years since um, anyone has seen a prophet. Um, and um, a new baby had been born, as we know. And there have been hopes that this new baby, Jesus, might be the Messiah. But 30 years have now passed, there's been no news. But now, the silence is about to be broken. Jesus the Messiah is about to go public. And it's the job of John the Baptist to make the way ready for Jesus, to announce the arrival of Jesus. Look at verse 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He's saying if you want to be part of God's kingdom, then the doorway is through repentance. But what do these words mean? We, we use them, don't we, a lot as Christians, kingdom, repentance. What do they actually mean? Well, the word kingdom refers both to rule and to realm. So we're talking about who's boss, and the jurisdiction of their power. So to enter into God's kingdom means to come under the king's rule, both now and in the future. It's not a geographical area, it's not a country, it's a movement. The kingdom is a movement of people who've submitted their lives to Jesus. And these kingdom subjects, these members of this movement, live all over the world. But what about repentance? What does that mean? Well, repentance is another way to say stop, turn around and go in the other direction. And some people suggest that the word repent was originally um, a military term. So just imagine Matthew sitting under some tree in the hot sun and uh, he's writing his, his gospel. 
And uh, then a troop of Roman soldiers file past and uh, an Italian captain shouts out, Repent! And the soldiers stop, turn around and go in the opposite direction. That's what it means to repent. To repent is to say, I want to start living God's way. I'm stopping, I'm turning around, I'm going to live under his rule. And that was John the Baptist's message. And it's a message that we have been called to share as well today. A few years ago, Irene and myself were living in Bolton. And uh, while we were living there, we met some Christians from East Africa. And um, they told me how they had been sent from their church in Africa to come to the UK to spread the message of the gospel. (coughs) They said, you know, 150 years ago, you sent missionaries to our country. And we're so grateful that you did, because we heard the message of Jesus. But now we've been sent to come back to you, because we've heard you've lost your way. And when they came here, they said, well, I asked them, I said, what was it like when you came to the UK? They were shocked. They were shocked because the churches were empty. They were shocked to see how Christians in the UK were so reluctant and hesitant to to share the good news of the the Christian message. And they said that the country just felt spiritually barren. I was really struck by the confidence that they had in the gospel message. And I'm glad that they're here because they have something to teach us. They've come to remind us of that confidence that we once had that sent people all over the world. But somehow we've become apologetic. We've become defensive. We've become reluctant to share that message. John the Baptist, in this passage, shares this message with confidence. And so should we. Also, we see that um, John the Baptist takes risks. Um, And he takes risks in his lifestyle, his ministry and his words. I wonder if you've heard of a man called Andrew White. Uh, He used to be the vicar of Baghdad, of all places. Imagine having your parish in Baghdad. Despite being diagnosed with MS, he ran a parish there in Iraq. And he had um, a remarkable ministry. You can read his books in one of the most dangerous places in the world. But he describes that when he was training to be a minister, a priest in the Anglican church, he was given these words of advice. He was told, don't take care, take risks. And he's taken a huge amount of risks. And as he's taken those risks, the church grew in Baghdad. And as we look at the life of John the Baptist, we see he's a man taking risks for the kingdom of God. First of all, in the lifestyle that he leads. Look at verse 4. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He's not really the kind of guy that you'd invite around for tea. If you did, you need to have a lot of locusts and honey stored up. And he's even more alternative in his choice of wardrobe. All I know about camel's hair is it pongs if you've ever walked past a camel. It's not the same as wearing a lamb's wool jumper. See, this man follows a very simple lifestyle. And his lifestyle must have been uncomfortable for the religious leaders of the day. It was radically different from the luxurious palaces that they lived in. Because, you see, it wasn't all about him. He isn't dressing to impress. He's actually trying to keep in the background a bit so that people's attention is on Jesus and not on him. He's countercultural. 
And we see that it's a strategy which works. Look in verse 5. It says that people went out to him from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the whole whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptised in the Jordan River. So people are flocking to him to get themselves ready to meet with Jesus. But we also see him taking risks with his ministry. With his ministry. The, um, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was writing in particular for Jewish readers. And he knows that when they read a description of John the Baptist, they're going to be thinking about another great prophet, a prophet called Elijah. And they knew that it was prophesied that before the Messiah came, that a prophet like Elijah would come. So when they saw John the Baptist, they thought about Elijah and wondered whether the Messiah was about to come. They would also have been surprised to hear that John the Baptist was baptising Jewish people because um, up to that point in time, baptism was just for converts to Judaism. So if you became from another faith and you became a Jew, then you were baptised. But here's John the Baptist baptising Jewish people. Why is he doing that? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to verse 3, where Matthew explains who John the Baptist is. He said, this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist's role is to launch the public ministry of Jesus. And it was predicted 400 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. And those words from Isaiah originally were spoken to the exiles in Babylon. God was calling them back to their own land under his guidance and protection. And they were to make a royal road to go back to the land. And now John the Baptist is using those same words to God's people again and saying, get ready and get onto that road, that royal road that leads you to Jesus, to the Messiah. And John the Baptist is here described as the voice Why is that? Well, I think the important thing is with John the Baptist is not what he looks like. It's not his image that's the important thing. It's what he has to say. It's not about him or his personality. It's about pointing people to Jesus. And John the Baptist has come to remove any obstacles in the way before the arrival of the king. He's saying the king is coming. Make a road for him. Make it good and straight. What's the biggest obstacle to us welcoming Jesus into our lives? If you've been a Christian for some time, as we think and prepare for Christmas, um, is there anything in our lives that's stopping us being able to celebrate and welcome Jesus as we remember his birth on Christmas Day? Or if we don't really know Jesus, what is it that stops us following him today? Perhaps we've drifted and we need to uproot something in our lives to clear the road for Jesus to be welcomed back into our lives. So John the Baptist takes risks in his lifestyle, his ministry, but also in the words that he speaks. They're pretty shocking, aren't they, really? He calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers. And he says, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's in verse 7. John speaks in a way that demands courage, because you see, he's confronting hypocrisy. He's not taking care. He's taking risks. He describes them as a bunch of snakes. Remember, he's been living in the wilderness. And as so often happens, we've seen it in Australia on the news this week, when there's a fire that um, 
that lights up a, a forest or a woodland, very often the small animals come scurrying out. And the same in the wilderness, the small rodents and the snakes come, in, come out of their hiding places to escape getting burnt up. And John the Baptist is saying that these religious leaders are like snakes. They're coming to be baptised, not because they genuinely want to turn away from their lifestyles and, and, and to follow Jesus. They just want to be seen to be doing what's the right thing. They see that as a new movement and they don't want to lose their influence over people. So they're coming and appearing to be interested. And I, and I think that's got a lot to say to us because God isn't interested in us just turning up in church, saying the words, singing the hymns. He's looking for a change in our hearts and us to respond to him from inside of ourselves, not just putting on a show. Finally, we see that John the Baptist does all of this with humility. John the Baptist's one aim is to point people to Jesus. Look in verse 11. He says, But after me will come one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. At that particular time, it was the servant's job to carry his master's sandals when he had to take them off. (coughs) And yet John says, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. John recognises he's got a part to play, but he mustn't get in the way. There's someone coming who's greater than he. And what will this person do? Well, John says in verse 11, I baptise with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? Well, all through the Old Testament, we can see the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit was given to particular people at particular times, particular tasks. But then in the book of Joel, another book in the Old Testament, um, there's a prophecy that talks about how God will pour out his spirit on all people. It says this, uh, God is speaking, it says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the prophets look forward to a day when God will pour his spirit out into all people. And John the Baptist is saying, well, those days have come. Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom. The reign of God was going to be established in a new way. And everyone will know God personally. They will have that opportunity if they turn to him. And the gift of God's spirit will be for everyone. I took my car to be washed um, uh, the other week and um, I used a jet wash and it got rid of all the dust and the dirt and the salt that stuck to my car. And I felt like the car was getting a really good clean. But as I drove away, the car still felt dirty. You see, inside the car was the remnants of a McDonald's lunch that I hadn't got rid of. There was a few empty cans of drink, soft drink, I'll just reassure you. There were receipts, there were empty crisp packets, and there was a layer of dust over the dashboard. The car wash had just dealt with the external dirt, but it hadn't done anything with the inside of the car. And John the Baptist is saying that his baptism was just with water. It was a baptism to show that people wanted to get ready for the arrival of Jesus. 
But he says when Jesus comes, he's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. A good soaking can get the external dirt off, but it can't touch the internal spiritual pollution in our hearts. It can't wash away the guilt that troubles us, that keeps us separated from God. The sense of shame we carry for what's being done to us. But imagine being soaked by the Holy Spirit. Imagine how powerful God's Spirit is to clean up in our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises. It's the full wash and valet. It's inside and out. Giving us a new heart, a new inclination to follow Jesus. Giving us a confidence to share that message. But finally... Jesus, sorry, John the Baptist leaves us um, with a few uncomfortable images. And it would be very easy just to skip over them. But I don't think I should. In the verses we read, there were two pictures. I don't know whether you noticed them. The first was a picture of a woodman whose axe has already fallen at the base of the tree because it hasn't borne fruit. And the second picture was one of a farmer who's separating out wheat and chaff and burning it burning the chaff on the fire. And it's interesting images, quite disturbing images. But then as you, if you were to go on reading Matthew's Gospel, you'll be struck by this Jesus who's compassionate, who's full of love, who's healing, who's forgiving people. But also a Jesus who talks about a day of accountability in the future. It's almost as if God has hit the pause button and he's giving us an opportunity to stop turn around and follow Jesus because the shocking news is that there will be a day when every one of us will have to face God and give an account of our lives and how we responded to Jesus you see John the Baptist's message is just as relevant for today as it was then stop turn around Follow Jesus. May each of us have the grace to consider this radical message, somber, yet life-transforming, full of joy and peace. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible, the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that although it's written about events that happened so long ago, By your spirit, you still speak to us, your people. And thank you, Lord, for the message of John the Baptist, which helps us, particularly this time of the year, as we remember your first coming and as we look forward to your coming again. May each of us hear that message. Get ready. Get rid of the the things in our lives that stop us being able to focus on you, Lord Jesus, and be ready for your coming. Help us to hear that message message of repentance, to stop, to turn around and go in the opposite direction, following you, Lord Jesus, and living the Christian life in the power of this spirit that you long to give us in our lives. So we receive once more, Lord, that wonderful promise of your spirit to empower us to live for you today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.